Welcome back to another episode of Psychocinematic. Today, my guest is writer and director of a new film called Molly and Max in the Future, and his name is Michael Luke Litwack. He and his team sent me this film a few days ago, and I was completely blown away what they could accomplish with visual effects on an indie budget. And when I started looking at his Instagram, my mind was blown with the sheer amount of creativity that went into this film. So I'm super excited to talk to him. So without further ado, here's Michael. So Michael, thank you so much for being here, and uh, thanks for sending me your film it really felt like this is the peak execution of creative tools that are actually realistic for indie filmmakers to get their hands on or even people who aren't even indie filmmakers at all so like after effects a green screen miniatures that you apparently 3d printed and all that i love the acting the colors the music and even seeing mateo lane in there i was like oh look at that <laughs> oh thank you so much man that means a lot yeah i mean it's it was a real labor of love from start to finish but we had a really great small kind of team of people that really worked together and everybody wore five or six different hats and um you know it could could not have done it without kind of the the small crew that we had but it was a very small crew <laughs> right not only were you the writer and director but you were also handling some visual effects or were you one of the main VFX artists for this? I am the writer director. I also produced the film along with a couple of really amazing producing partners. And then I was very involved with the visual effects from start to finish. And part of that was also part of the writing process where, you know, I wouldn't write something into the script unless I had done research and figured out, um, you know, this is how we're actually going to pull it off. And so for me, it was always starting from a place of like, what is the emotional journey that the characters go on? And then how do we build an environment with 50 50 to $100 that we know we can make look good and make it look intentional rather than kind of overstretching what we're capable of doing and coming up with something that just looks kind of shitty. A lot of the time I would kind of come up with the research and the conception of kind of a VFX approach. And then I worked a lot with my DP, Zach Stoltzfus, who um, has a little bit more of a traditional VFX experience. Uh, uh, I had done some of my own VFX on short films before, and I kind of just reached a point where I was like, you know, trying to get bigger budgets for bigger films and they just kept on falling apart. And uh, I just found myself kind of stuck in this development cycle. And eventually I kind of was like, if I, instead of spending the next three years trying to uh, get other people to give me money to hire real VFX artists, why don't I just spend that time learning some of these skills? And at the end of it, I'll at least have a movie on my hand. And I know they're not going to be the the most amazing VFX in the world, but uh, like I, I had kind of developed this aesthetic in some of my shorts of, you know, leaning into kind of the handmade lo-fi, um, retro futuristic, uh, practical first approach, which works on a couple of different levels, but, uh, is also makes it kind of achievable to, to produce on your own. I wanted to work with Zach because he's a great DP and I knew he had some, some background in it, but he really stepped up and then helped design some systems and after effects that made things easier. And, and he really is also like a workflow genius. And so he decided we should be shooting things in passes and that, and then he built, you know, programmed the system inside after effects so that we could, you know, bring up the front light or bring down the backlight and change the colors of those and, um, you know, helped kind of turn some of these ideas into reality. Um, and so then, you know, me and Zach would shoot 
uh, the models. I would find the buildings online and then Zach would be like, oh, I can 3D print some air conditioners for that. Uh, and then I would go and find some, uh, you know, Greeble 3D files and, and send them to him. And then he had experience painting miniatures. So then he would kind of teach me how to paint. Uh, and, and then we would shoot it and we kind of started shooting it in my living room and then eventually got a friend's office space that we could use because it was becoming, uh, a little bit too much to be all doing at home, but it really was kind of a back and forth between me and Zach. And, and he is really the one who, he did all the most complicated shots in the movie. And so at the beginning of the process, I was like, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. It's never going to be incredible professional quality. And then Zach really came in and was like, well, this is how we get accurate light wrap. This is how we do this. Then I was also like, okay, how do I execute that without nuke uh, inside after effects using red giant plugins? Like how can we do this in a way where even me who has it has some after effects knowledge but isn't an expert uh can can be there to kind of execute some of the more tedious side of things and so often zach was the one kind of designing these systems and then sending them over to me so that i could like mask the thing out that was really annoying and tedious but not that difficult and so um you know i'll be the first to admit all the best shots in the movie are, are zach's um <laughs> but uh, it really was like a collaborative process and and together me and zach basically did about 90 percent of the vfx in the film from start to finish so you just touched on so many of the things that i have planned to ask you and like dig deep <laughs> uh on and so trying to start from the first one that i remember you saying was when you're talking about the aesthetics of like the miniature lo-fi retro futuristic i was thinking that the style that you guys have with those miniatures. Um, I, I feel like that style is definitely a taste thing for some people. And what bums me out about the taste thing is that I feel like some people aren't going to be able to appreciate the like the genius and creativity of the visual effects because they're like, oh, that doesn't look like a true to world, you know, like a, a sci-fi world. It doesn't look like one of the newer Terminator movies or, you know, whatever, uh, trying to think the, the Tom Cruise one edge of tomorrow, or you know, it's not that honestly, people have really responded to it. And I mean, you know, I, I kind of call it this like elevated lo-fi aesthetic and, um, it's been, it's definitely one of the things that helps us stand out. And, mm -hmm. you know, when you're making your first movie, I think there's just so much other stuff out there and it's so easy to get lost in the sea of just like endless content. You know, this has been something that like every single review has called it out as something that they really enjoy. And most people kind of are like, it was all green screen or it was all CG. And like, they don't fully understand kind of like all the different things that we used, but that's okay because I think for, for, for the vast majority of them, it has worked. And so, I mean, at the end of the day, nothing is ever going to make everybody happy, but to me, right. the strategy was always like, and we know that we can't pull off CG at a high level. Like I'm not anti CG. I think there's a lot of really amazing CG out there, but I think those skills take so long to perfect. And when you're going for realism, it can be really difficult because if the smallest thing is out, out of, out of, you know, whack, your, yeah. your brain recognizes it immediately. And with this, it was like, well, obviously I, I want to create a really visually stunning world. It's really important to me that the visuals are great, but uh, at the end of the day, what makes a great movie is, is the story and the characters and this aesthetic kind of 
while it is very loud at the same time, I actually think it ironically allows you to take a step back and be like the same way a narrator works, where when you hear a narrator narrating a story in a movie, you realize subconsciously and consciously that you're watching a movie, you're watching a story, somebody's telling you a story. It's this is not an experience that you're really being immersed in in the same way that other films kind of work. And so it kind of creates this distancing effect where uh, people can kind of take a step back and they're not judging the movie based off of, oh, wait a second, that button in the back right corner looks a little bit off. And what does that label say right there? And it allows people to be like, oh, it's act it's actually not about that. It's about kind of creating this cartoon universe where things are exaggerated and I'm not taking everything at face value and and the world exists on a more metaphorical level. I was one of the people who did really like that style, but I felt like it complemented the music choice uh, that you guys had and then the lights. And then it then complements the story, like just the some of the dialogue that you guys have, because it really feels like this isn't even in our universe. This feels like a completely different place. The dialogue of like, oh my gods, or um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. oh my science, you know, like just all those little details, Definitely. just it's all working together perfectly. I like that Thank a you. lot. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is that, you know, the, the script is really ridiculous. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think about a lot of the stuff I write as like almost like live action cartoons. And, uh, you know, I write I have a variety of different kind of things I like to write. Not everything I write is exactly like this, but I think that, you know, the the aesthetic is connected to the storytelling in, a, in multiple ways. And the fact that, uh, it's easier to kind of sell all of these ridiculous things happening when when you're in this very stylized world versus if you were to portray everything super realistically. I don't know if if some of those story points would would come off uh, the same way. And I mean, I don't really know how uh, well a tentacle sex <laughs> cult <laughs> god thing would come across when it's like photo real. <laughs> yeah. That part caught me off guard so bad because like the whole movie had like one one uh, singular tone. But then all of a sudden I was like, what the hell is happening? This is great. That was awesome. Definitely Thank had the shock value. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been it's been really fun uh, to see it with a live audience, too. And that story point I wanted to kind of talk about. Um, a toxic relationship and but I didn't want it to be like abusive or dark. I wanted to talk about what it's like to be stuck in something and to have your kind of like self-esteem lowered and and be with someone who just doesn't really treat you very well, but isn't quite necessarily, you know, physically abusive. To me, it was like, well, you're, the metaphor is you're dating a monster. And uh, how do we kind of use these sci science fiction metaphors and allegories to explore what's like very real, very relatable kinds of things that anyone who's ever dated someone, whether it's a guy or girl who's just kind of mean to them, can kind of see themselves in it and uh, kind of see the ridiculousness of what it's like when you're dating someone who's clearly just kind of terrible, but you can't see past it. That's really good. I, I didn't even think about the metaphor there, but that's that's Brilliant. I'm sure there's a handful of those scattered throughout the story. So that's really cool. When it comes to your guys' miniatures, uh, so I know you were doing like some of the some 3D printing. Did you guys also like just buy miniature packs online or something like that that already came, you know, that you didn't have to print? So, yeah, a lot of the, you know, the buildings kind of started off as this is a you know, $5 Amazon.com model that we bought. And mm. that that has the windows already cut out. Um, anybody can buy this online for five or 10 bucks. And then we printed out, um, you know, these little air conditioners, these little vents, these little satellite dishes. You can see some of them have popped off since mm -hmm. since we made it. We, these little columns at the bottom. 
and then we also, you know, cut a bunch of straws and and place straws on them. And then in the back, we cut a hole in the back and just stuffed Christmas lights in them. Uh, oh, and I just broke another one. Um, and so, you know, this at, at the end of the day, on, on terms of raw material costs, this was about ten dollars. Uh, mm. And we were able to because that was part of the research process, too, is like you can find really amazing miniature buildings, some of them are 100 or $150 for the model kit. And so a lot of the times it was like, okay, you find the $150 version, and then you go back and you find the $5 version. And is there a way to kind of, if you if you want to get 25 of something, you're going to need to get the $5 version instead of the $125 version. Um, mm-hmm. So we started with that. And then, you know, like with Molly's spaceship, you know, this is a smart car model that we bought offline. Um, you know, these engines are from... Uh, uh, another model kit. Um, and then, you know, this back, this back wing area was also from another model kit. And, um, you know, we just kind of taped them, glued them all together, put some plaster on it, um, put a bunch of greeble on it. And again, some of these were from toy kits. Some of them were from other model kits. Um, some, you know, a couple pieces were, you know, 3d printed. We kind of just print, tried to print a variety of kind of like detail stuff and put Mm -hmm. it on there. And then, you know, that, that there's a little person inside there too. And that is from another model kit too. Um, so it really was kind of like just figuring out what we can get cheaply and that we can pull off and then, you know, customizing it so that it looks, you know, intentional and, and from our universe. That, uh, for one, sounds super time consuming. And I would understand why you had to move into an office space because I'm just imagining basically like Legos on steroids, like in a kid's room, <laughs> just everywhere and, you know, getting really messy trying to build these things. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the first four or five like shoots that we did were in in my living room and then it was getting very very hot in there i talked to a friend who had an office space that had like kind of a big wide open area and they shoot a lot of commercials there i asked them like could i come here and then i'll clean up my stuff at the end of the day and if i can come every couple of weeks and shoot a day or two like would you guys be down for that and uh they said yes and and we did that basically over the course of 18 months you know where we would do, I would be doing research, figuring out kind of the scheme. And then me and Zach would go to their office and film for a day. Then we'd bring it home and and kind of do a test and see what was working and what wasn't working. And and then if we had to go back and shoot again, we could. And all of the equipment was there, A7Ss and A7Rs, like nothing too insane. That was, I think, an important part of it too, is just like not trying to overextend ourselves at that point and keeping everything very like prosumer stuff that we can get uh, on our own. Last question about your miniatures. Uh, what did you end up doing with all of them? Because I imagine you probably had a ton of them. I mean, you clearly still have some of them. Did you keep them all? No, I kept I kept like a couple of the buildings. I kept the two spaceships because those are kind of like iconic. And then mm-hmm. um, I gave some of them away. Uh, and then I threw away a bunch of them just because, you know, I don't need 25 of these buildings. <laughs> so, yeah. So I saw that you guys, uh, in addition to shooting on green screen, uh, shot on an led stage a bit. Um, and you were developing these backgrounds in unreal engine, which again, like free software, like that, that's great. And it looks great. And obviously the benefit of an led stage is you can see it. There's reflections that are actually cast. Like there's light being shown onto the characters themselves. Uh, but I'm curious, are there like any unforeseen issues with that, that, because I've never shot on a stage like that before. Um, but I would imagine like, do you have to worry about flicker at all? Um, 
any kind yeah. of little thing like that. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of the day, we shot on, I think, four different cameras because um, not on the LED stage, but like the LED stage needed a specific type of red camera. I think it was the Komodo because the shutter speed would would line up with it. And so we shot all of that stuff, I think, in 6K and then everything we shot that was rear screen projection or uh, green screen was all shot on an Alexa uh, Amira or sorry. Yeah. Ari Amira. Um, And uh, and then all of our plates and backgrounds were um, uh, shot on an A7R or an A7S. Um, and, you know, often we would take those plates that were shot on an A7R, A7S and throw them up on the LED screen and then film it all together. And I mean, it's so much, so much nicer to film in front of a background than it is to film on green screen. Um, honestly, the bit, the hardest part was just the size of of the studios when we were doing rear screen projection or even on the LED stage because it was a smaller LED stage. And I think that, you know, if I had to do it over again, one of the things we realized in post was that we didn't really have enough wide shots. And because you're trying to frame out the bottom of the screen and you also don't want to go out of the, the top of the screen, you can end up kind of like defaulting to kind of medium shots. And because we had some flexibility because of our VFX skills, we added some wides afterwards where we took a medium shot and then we expanded the frame and we're able to kind of give that breathing room. But, you know, since making the movie, I've also seen a lot of clips of people on stages where they, they, you know, will shoot their mediums and their close-ups on the stage. But then when they want a wide shot, they go back to green so that they can, you know, have that be a plate as part of something bigger. And, um, you know, I also think there's clever ways to kind of hide those seams so that you can get, you know, th- at least three quarters of a wide shot and then do some set extensions on the side, both on the green screen stuff and and on the LED stage stuff. Like one of the hardest parts is just you have to shoot everything in one direction because the stage isn't moving uh, or the green screen isn't moving. And so it becomes this mental puzzle of like, all right, I'm shooting over the shoulder over here and the light's coming from this side. And then when I shoot the reverse, I just move the camera like a foot to the left and then they have to switch but then he's on this side and so like we had 3d storyboards that kind of went through everything and that was really really helpful because we could just we had a google doc with our shot list that had 3d storyboards and we could show people no this is where they are this is where the light's coming from um but it still was like just a lot of mental math in in your head and and we didn't have a script supervisor you know making sure that those eye lines matched was one of the hardest parts of it too because i mean most of the scenes in the film are only between two people but there were a couple scenes with multiple characters and having to you know having to have four characters side by side and then shoot two of them here and then move over there to shoot over like the, the other two characters and you also have to move all the furniture behind them. Uh, it hurt. <laughs> it hurt mm-hmm. my brain. I think the other biggest lesson learned, and we learned this while we were shooting and I think we were able to adjust. It's really, really important to have those foreground props and those midground props. And, uh, you know, it, it becomes even harder to orient yourself, just making sure that you have your, your props, like really helps ground you in the world and adds like an additional layer, because if it's just one person standing in front of a screen, it can be a lot harder to kind of sell that. Well, like you said, it's impossible. It feels like to sell just a green screen or a screen, unless there's something tangible that they can probably interact with, even if it's just a prop, like when they are doing uh, the phones, talking to themselves, you got plenty of reps in with green screen and it only takes a few times to work on a green screen to know that it's just, it's so, it can be so finicky and you really need great uh, conditions for that. Like for me, 
uh, if I shoot on a green screen just at my house, my main problem is not being able to evenly, evenly light the green screen without it touching the subject at the same time. And so I'm wondering, are there a handful of go-to things that you do with your green screen after this film where you're like, all right, I need to make sure that all of these things are met to really get a good key and make it believable. To be honest, Zach is the one who handles a lot of the the nuts and bolts of lighting things. Um, you know, I think one thing we realized afterwards when we got into um, uh, post was, you know, there there were a couple of scenes where there was just a little bit of orange spill on the green mm -hmm. screen, and that really made every single one of those shots a lot harder to key. We had a character who had a, a small beard coming off of their their face, and uh, that also was made our lives very, very difficult afterwards. And I think if I had to do it again, it looked amazing. Our, our makeup designer did an incredible job, but it just created a huge problem for us. Um, and I think I would have maybe, you know, tried something different. Um, so, you know, I think maybe just like solving some of those problems ahead of time and planning ahead and not setting yourself up to then have to fix those problems later is, mm -hmm. is important. I'm guessing every shot in here was technically a VFX shot, but do you know how many total there were? It was uh, somewhere around 950. <laughs> Jesus. That's yeah, crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. So it, it was a lot. And but, you know, like I said, Zach kind of set up these systems for us where you know, there really isn't that much complex camera movement. And um, so a lot of what we would, if there was a back and forth between two characters, it was, you know, sh a shot reverse shot. And so we could take all 15 shots of Molly and then all 15 shots of Max, uh, put them in an After Effects timeline and just kind of key the background once. And so that you had your foreground layer with the character on it, your background layer with someone else with, with the background. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes there were, were specific instances where you had to go in and, and change something and, and dial it into the shot. But for the most part, it was like everything in that situation was the same lighting setup. So once you keyed it once, you could key all 15 of those shots at the same time. And so right. there definitely was, you know, a lot of drafts on some of them and some of them, like if there was a spill issue, then those were the ones that took the most time. But there were a lot of scenes where, you know, that is the benefit to doing a lot of it yourself where nothing gets lost in translation. And Zach also, we have so much in common in terms of our tastes and, and he understood what, you know, and created a lot of the aesthetic of the film. And so it wasn't like we were trying to communicate it to somebody else and that there wasn't really this like lost in translation element of like wanting someone to do something and then they don't know how to really pull it off. But because it was just us, like we could adjust on the fly and be like, okay, this cloud back there is not working. Let's swap it out with this one. And, you know, the golden rule was, it was just always kind of like, what do we think looks best? and how do we kind of lean into something rather than overextend ourselves with that many vfx shots even with a uh, good pipeline and system of you know keying out just the green screen stuff how long from like pre-production doing like your research on visual effects stuff to finishing post-production do you think this process was so we had about 18 months of pre-production but that wasn't every day it was like you know maybe one or two days a week um and one or two days a week of like fully dedicated work. And then there would always be like, you know, a couple hours here and there on the other days. Um, but, you know, we both were taking other jobs throughout that time. And there would be times where we wouldn't work on it for like a week or two and then would come back to it. Um, so it really was kind of like chipping away at stuff and, um, you know, just 
after we did the first couple of things, we learned ways to make things a little bit more efficient, but uh, 18 months of pre-production, then we had four weeks of shooting. And then um, we had about six months, uh, maybe five months of post uh, where we, we picture locked after about five weeks after we wrapped. And then uh, we took a little bit of a break we submitted to like Sundance and South by using a picture lock cut that had like Premiere Pro keys, you know, like really mm -hmm. kind of shitty keys in there. But uh, it was enough to kind of understand what was happening, you know. And so we did some test screenings where we're like, do you understand that they're in a bedroom? Like, because that's important for the story if, you know, we just don't want anyone to be confused. Um, and so we submitted off of that and we were kind of like, well, once we're going to keep on chipping away at it, but once we have a premiere date, then we'll be off to the races. And so we found out that we got into South by, and then it was like, oh shit, we have seven weeks to deliver this movie. And, uh, you know, I, they were like, send us your DCP like three weeks before the screening. And I was like, when is the absolute last day that we can turn in the DCP? So we turned it in basically three days beforehand and they were able to test it and make sure that there was nothing wrong with the DCP. And then the whole time that we were at the first screening, I was just like shitting my pants because I was like, please don't have something be wrong with the DCP. <laughs> and we got through it and then I could enjoy myself. I'm guessing DCP is just like the final cut. The di digital cinema projection, like okay. it's the format that the theaters like want to have it in. And so like we we would finish the VFX shots, send them over to color, and then our colorist would, you know, color them with us either on Zoom. And we did it like a couple days in person at the very end. Uh, but then the colorist puts it onto a, a DCP drive uh, and then sends that over to the theater and the theater plays it. And um, yeah, I've heard a lot of horror stories of people, people's DCPs being messed up at their premieres. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, or, you know, there's also the possible what what is more likely is that, you know, there will be a glitch or a render error in the DCP. And so like a big black box will yeah. pop up. And so the last like two or three days, we were just watching the movie start to finish, trying to keep our eyes like open and make and we we, we would catch a bunch of black squares here and there and be like, oh, OK, caught this one, caught this one. But it, it pops up for a frame. And if you blink at that exact moment, you miss it. And so that's exhausting. Was, yeah. Me and Zach were the only ones like watching it and trying to make sure it uh, that it was. Uh, okay, but it's also like very time consuming. And so we thought that we had made sure that there weren't any render errors. Um, but you just, you know, you hope that 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 stays true when you when you're actually screening it. <laughs> With this film, how did you go about uh, raising the budget? Yeah, so we had 11 private equity investors, including myself and my wife and Zach and uh, Ben, one of our lead producers. And so, you know, six out of the 11 people that uh, were involved were people that were had like lead creative positions on it. And so a lot of it was kind of unpaid work where we put in time and then like gave ourselves equity in the film and own a piece of it. And so, you know, while we aren't actually paying ourselves $500 a day, you're essentially like writing it down as if you contributed $500 worth of, of cash to the project. And so it was kind of a non-traditional finance model. Uh, and then every, all the other five investors were somebody that was like one degree of separation from uh, somebody that had a lead role on the movie, uh, a lead creative role on the movie. And so it really was kind of scraped together from everywhere, uh, just emailing everyone I've ever met and being like, we're making a movie, here's some test footage you know, can, are, would you be interested in helping out? And, you know, 99% of people said no, but you just need those couple of people who are like, yeah, let's do it. And, um, you know, a lot of those people like 
you initially hit them up just because you're looking for in, investment and you know it's it, but they can come on board and help in other ways and so certain members of the team you know just came on board initially to to uh invest a little bit of money and then once they're involved they see what's going on they see an opportunity to help and then they get more involved and then they become a bigger part of the process and they become like a really essential part of the team i've never heard of that but that's a really creative solution to you know getting the funding. So something that you guys had said in the email when you sent the film was that there's on average only like 12 people on set making this happen. It's crazy. And you guys <laughs> ended the movie with like a little bit of behind the scenes stuff. And you, I think it was not on Instagram, but it was actually in the credits where it shows like the, the final scene and uh, yeah. <laughs> the people helping spin. Just yeah. all of that. Crazy that you could do that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it was not enough people, but we got it done and it, it definitely is not like sustainable. So I don't recommend it to anybody, but it was, you know, again, there's there's the there's this triangle of like fast, cheap and good. And if you can spread things out and you can take some time to uh, prepare and just be extremely prepared um you know, it, it it makes things a lot easier in other ways. And so we were all kind of overextended and it was really exhausting, but everybody knew what the assignment was, knew what they were responsible for, and uh, also really knew how to kind of work within the constraints of what was possible. And I think, you know, it's important to be ambitious, but it's you also just, you can't ask people for things that are impossible. And everybody there had enough experience to know when to say no uh, and not just blindly say, yes, I'll do, I'll do it. We'll make it happen. Because then if you can't actually make it happen, then you end up setting yourself back in other ways. So it was always kind of this back and forth of like, this is the, this is kind of what I have in mind. What can we do with a thousand dollars or, you know, whatever the budget is for this specific element of the film. And, um, you know, are we, we had a one person production design team. We had a one person costume design team. Um, but, you know, it was they they all just like knew how to wear those multiple hats. And, you know, it, it, we just got very lucky that we had really great people that that could, you know, really take a dollar and stretch it very, very far. Before I forget to ask the the robot fights, was that stop motion? It was. Yeah. It so good. that was Thank you. That that was one of the elements that we uh, worked with outside uh, artists with. Mm. And I found this guy on Fiverr named Chris Rogers, and uh, he had a great stop motion animation reel. And I kind of explained to him what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I there's an old movie called Robot Jocks that has really cool like sci fi robots uh, that are stop motion. And, um, you know, we we talked about picking out kind of a model kit that we could then modify and, um, you know, make our own, make it custom. And um, then I put together a video animatic that kind of went through this is what every shot in the sequence should be. And it was a compilation of other animated fights, uh, some of them anime, uh, some of them stop motion videos online of, of characters fighting, uh, like clips from Scott Pilgrim of just like, you know, we want a frontal shot of somebody punching the camera. And it was like a 90 second sequence that wouldn't make sense to anybody else unless you knew exactly what we were talking about. But it was like, we created the animatic, I could send that over to them and then they animated the characters and then sent us back the stills in front of green. And then we, um, you know, took out the green behind them, added motion blur between the frames, uh, and then built like the stadium background for them to fight inside of. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, and, and the stadium background from the inside was also something that was built by an outside artist. He did an incredible job of kind of building us this 2.5D like cheering stadium that we could then manipulate and so that we could get kind of parallax and, and depth uh, inside there. Um, and so those were two things that were like crowd simulations, super specified uh, or specialized. Uh, we didn't feel confident that we could pull that off and stop motion animation too is something that is like just takes years to learn. And so those 90 seconds took about eight months for the animators to to work on. Again, not every day. They both kind of had other jobs that they were working on at the same time, but it was like, you know, every week we'd get a new shot. And, you know, there were four weeks where we were shooting, where we couldn't process anything. But then once we were done shooting, we could start bringing those in. We could bring in that, that, that sequence into premiere. We could then send it back to them and be like, all right, we need an extra 10 frames on this shot. Can you redo that one? And most of the time we didn't have to redo a lot of stuff, but it was, it was my first time working with stop motion animators. And it was, it was really cool. It was a really good experience. And, but it takes so much time and it's so like tedious mm-hmm. added another kind of level of complexity, but I also think it, it added some production value to the film and, and was just a fun thing to have robots fighting. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And probably the most affordable way to uh, kind of keep with that style that you guys have and have a robot fight. Definitely. Definitely. Never considered looking at Fiverr for, you know, like something for like filmmaking, you know, that that's cool that that worked out and you found someone who is like truly good at what they do. And I'm sure that person probably didn't anticipate working on a movie <laughs> that's going to theaters. Yeah, I mean, he, Chris had done like stop motion advertisements for other people before. Um, you know, I've had I've had very mixed experiences with Fiverr when when it comes to like concept art or something like you know other aspects. And uh, but there are some like insanely talented people out there, and sometimes there is a language barrier, and other times you know there isn't. It's hard to communicate. Sometimes even if people do speak English, like what you're looking for. And, um, but I just got really lucky and and found someone who, who got it and, um, you know, tried to really just over communicate as much as possible with them. Um, so they're out there and, you know, especially I think Fiverr kind of opens you up to people that are outside of the United States too. Um, so I'm not being paid by them. Uh, (laughs) there's a lot of downsides to that platform too. Um, but, uh, you know, we, I was able to find a couple good people on it. Yeah, that's awesome. So now that, uh, the film is about to come out, what are you setting your eyes on next? So I have a new movie that I wrote. That's like a sci-fi Western heist film. And, um, you know, we are trying to get it made at a a little bit more of a comfortable level so that we don't have to do everything ourselves. But if we have to do it ourselves again, like we learned a lot from this process. And I think, you know, I don't think we want to do, you know, a two person team, but we could do a five person team or, you know, keep it small. Um, You know, I think, you know, what's most important to me is just that I I don't spend another seven years kind of waiting to get the next thing made because I kind of got stuck in that cycle beforehand. And so to me, I'd rather make a smaller movie sooner than wait a much, uh, a long time for a much bigger one. Um, so that is kind of my number one priority. And, um, you know, we're putting the 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 movie in theaters next week. So we're trying to just get the word out and hopefully take advantage of some of that press and, and to, and attention to, to, get some attention for the next film. And the film comes out on Valentine's Day? It comes out on Friday, February 9th. It should be in theaters until the 15th. 
um, mm. at, in select theaters across the country, and then it will be on video on demand on March 22nd. Do you know which platform? We don't know yet, but uh, I think you, it'll be on kind of all the major ones, and then there might be a subscription video on demand deal after that. Um, so uh, we're waiting to find out there, but it should be available kind of wherever you, you can find your movies. Gotcha. Yeah. Before this podcast, I was checking your guys' uh, website for where it was going to theaters, hoping that there was one random showing in Reno. Because <laughs> oh, uh, I Reno? was like, dude, nice. yeah, I was like, I, w- I would go see it in theaters just to, you know, like oh, thanks, see it man. on the big screen. But yeah, unfortunately, it's not. But um, I'm definitely going to be hyping it up. Yeah, this is extremely helpful. There's a chance we'll be adding some more theaters, um, but I don't know. We mm-hmm. kind of like they they release stuff kind of at the last second. So we just got, you know, f- 15 new theaters yesterday. They might add some more tomorrow but i i am somewhat removed a little bit from from that side of things so i'm updating the list kind of like as we get it but i don't think we have anything in reno right now yeah i I mean i'm not surprised i feel like uh we never get any of the like the indie films coming to the theaters it's like oh we're still playing oppenheimer and it's freaking february (laughs) yeah so yeah. yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah, well, Michael, thank you for coming on here and uh, for sending me the film because I, I genuinely enjoyed the experience and uh, was just super inspired by seeing the behind the scenes stuff too. And I hope your guys' uh, you know, unrolling of it for the premiere goes great. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm a fan of, of your channel and um, thanks for helping us get the word out about the movie.